The following is a message from Christ the King Presbyterian Church in Roanoke, Virginia. For more information about the ministry of Christ the King, please visit us at ctkroanoke.org. Well, good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Christ the King. Uh, my name is Penny. And uh, for those of you who don't know me, I'm the senior pastor here, and it is great to be with you uh, as we uh, join together in worship and as we come to God's Word. And uh, this morning, we're beginning a new sermon series in the book of Romans, in the book of Romans. So if you have a Bible, uh, you can turn to Romans chapter 1. Uh, Romans is found in the New Testament. Uh, it comes right after the Gospels and, that, and Acts. So uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. So if you're looking for it and you uh, stumble across one of those uh, books, you need to go a little farther in. If you hit on a book that I didn't mention, you've gone go back a little bit. Um, but we're looking at Romans, and if you've been around the church for any period of time, uh, you're probably very, uh, you've probably noticed or seen that this is a book that, that often churches will go through. Uh, because of how influential, how significant this book is to our understanding of what we believe about God and his people. Maybe you've gone online and you've uh, found your favorite uh, preacher not named Penny. <laughs> that, was a, that was a joke, by the way. <laughs> uh, thank you, some of you, for laughing. But um, anyway, you go on and you find your favorite preacher and you, you go to listen to them, or maybe the church you came from, and you see that they're preaching through Romans. And, and sometimes Romans will be preached uh, for many, 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 many years. <laughs> not months, not weeks, but years. Uh, there's a practice where, you know, sometimes it'll take five, six plus years to preach through Romans. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, that's a way of approaching the passage, the text. Um, that's not how we're going to do it, though. So I know y'all maybe took a deep breath. Uh, you feel better. Um, we are not going to be uh, doing, you know, like two verses a week uh, for the next 12 years to get through this book. Instead, um, there will be times where we'll slow down a little bit and we'll focus our attention on some specific items in Romans, other times where we'll kind of look at a big picture, move through a chapter a little quicker, uh, depending on where we are. Um, and my hope, my goal is that uh, basically over the next year, we will uh, go through this book with some periodic stops and starts and some other things. So for those of you who like to plan, that's how you can start to be orienting your mind. So, um, but, but we're looking at Romans because Romans is a very significant book in the New Testament. It's an important letter. I mean, they're all important, and yet uh, this is the one that it seems like the Lord has used in his sovereign providence to uh, influence, influence uh, many, many people in his church. So for instance, Augustine, one of the greatest uh, theologians the church has ever known, it was when he was in a garden, and he seemingly heard these words come out of nowhere, take and read, that he turned and found a Bible, opened it to the book of Romans. And from his reading of Romans, he became a Christian. It was Martin Luther, who was the catalyst of the Reformation, who, uh, upon studying the New Testament and studying uh, the, the writings in Scripture as a monk, that he came across Romans 1 and discovered anew God's grace and mercy. John Calvin, the great French theologian, said this of Romans. He said it was his entrance to all the most hidden treasure of Scripture. We could go on and on, 
right? We could talk about the Wesley brothers and how they were converted through the hearing of uh, Luther's preface to his commentary on Romans being read. Uh, I don't know how many of y'all read prefaces to commentaries, but, but that's how the Lord used them, used that. And, but, but, but the point is, is that whether you are a great theologian who was converted through the reading of this book or whether you've just read through it on your own, you know the import and the significance that this book has. Because we've experienced the rich theology found in it and the beautiful truths, and we've experienced the comforting words of God in this letter. This letter that's written by Paul, it's written to a church that he has never met. This is a little unique because we've become accustomed to having Paul writing letters to churches that he helped plant or start, right? But in Rome, he had nothing to do with the planting of Rome, of starting this church. And so he's writing this letter to this church that he's never met, and he's writing to them to prepare them for his visit. He said, I'm coming to you, so get ready. <laughs> Here's my preface to my arrival. He's writing to this church. It's at the city center of the greatest empire of the day. A church that's made up of Jews and Gentiles. It's made up of people who, who had heard the promises of God and those who had never experienced them before. And he's writing to them the gospel. That's what he writes. He writes of the sinfulness of man and the justific and justification of, by faith and the church living as the people of God and of God's promises and his work of redemption. And in this opening chapter, he writes of salvation. And so that's where we'll begin this morning, looking at Romans 1, verses 1 through 18. Let's read. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit, with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I'm eager to preach the gospel to you, gospel to you also who are in Rome. <clears throat> Excuse me. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, 
Thank you for your word, and thank you that you have preserved it for us. And we ask as we come to it now that you would uh, teach us from it. God, that you would help me so that my words would give you glory and honor, that you would help us so that our attention to your word would uh, honor you. And so, Father, work and move by your spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I don't know about you, but it seems to me that every time I go on Rotten Tomatoes or I look up on IMDb, it seems like there's another uh, superhero movie that's being released. It just seems like the market, film market, is saturated with superhero movies, whether it's live action like the Marvel Cinematic Universe or the animated versions like Big Hero 6, which is well worth your time, by the way. Um, It seems like every other week a new superhero movie is being released. But for some of us, we know that long before there was Iron Man and long before there was Big Hero and long before there were these other uh, newer kind of superheroes like Doctor Strange and his multiverse and long before Batman was taking on what seemingly is teenage angst, there was the original superhero, Superman, right? He's the original. He is the OG, right? Superman. And in 2006, there was a Superman movie release called Superman Returns, and it was the final installment of the original Superman series. And Superman, it begins with him having gone off to Krypton. He's gone back to his home planet, and he's going to discover his kind of origin and where he came from and check it out. And and he's gone for many years from Earth. And in his absence, it seems like the people of Earth have left him behind. They've moved on. Lois Lane, his love interest, who's writing for the fictitious Daily Planet, writes an article that wins the Pulitzer Prize called Why the World Doesn't Need Superman. And so he returns to this place, this place that he had protected and cared for. He returns to this place, and they have moved on. Well, as the movie goes on, Superman and Lois, they've reconnected a little bit, and, and there we have this iconic scene, you know, it seems like it's in every Superman movie that, that Superman and Lois have to, like, float over the, the city, you know, like, gazing into it, it's very romantic, there's stars and moon and all these, so, well, this happens in this movie, too. And as they're floating above the city of Metropolis, Superman says to Lois, listen, What do you hear? Well, hundreds, maybe even thousands of feet above the city, Lois can't hear anything. She says nothing. To which Superman responds, I hear everything. You wrote that the world doesn't need a savior, but every day I hear people crying for one. Every day I hear a city crying for a savior. And he's right. See, this is true, not just in movies. It's not just true of this fictitious world of metropolis. It's true in the real world. It's true in the world in which we inhabit. That we are people in need of a savior. Now, our world probably doesn't use that word to describe our need. But every single one of us is looking to someone or something or somebody to solve our problems to help us in our time of need, to bring us peace, right? We look to world leaders. We look to internet influencers. We maybe stop looking outside and we turn inward and we look to ourselves. 
But wherever it is that we may be looking, the truth is, is that we're going to look to something to save us. Something to help us. Someone to bring us peace. You see, every day the world is crying for a savior. And that cry points to the fact that we are in need of saving. And that's what Paul's speaking about in our passage. Paul begins Romans by speaking of the salvation that comes from the gospel. Look at verse 16. He says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. There are many theologians who think that the the theme verse of the book of Romans is verses 16 and 17. That I'm not ashamed of the gospel is the power of God for salvation. That that's what Paul begins with, the gospel, the message that salvation has come. And the source of this salvation is a person. We see it as our passage begins. The opening paragraph, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace. I love this. I love that Paul, in this letter to the Roman church, that he can't even go like a couple words before he has to invoke Jesus. Right? Like he has to talk about him. He has to bring him up. And why? Because Jesus is the central figure to our salvation. He is the source of our salvation. I mean, that's what Paul's saying about him, right? Look how he describes him. The promises of God made through the prophets, those things that are recorded in the scriptures, they find their fulfillment in Christ. He goes on and says of Jesus that he came in the flesh. He descended from David. He was a man. But he wasn't just a man. He was also God, the son of God, raised from the dead, and through him we receive grace. You see, what Paul is telling us is that the only source for the salvation that we and our world is in need of, is Christ. But that's not all that Paul tells us. He doesn't just speak of the source of our salvation, he also speaks of the scope of our salvation. Look at verses 4 through 5. Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. All the nations. That is the scope of God's salvation. All the nations. And this has actually been the promise of God from the very beginning. Right? I mean, do you remember in Genesis chapter 12? God comes to Abraham. He says, up from the place in which you live, and I'm going to take you to a land. I'm going to show you this other place. And as you go there, I'm going to bless you. And through you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Abraham, the scope of the salvation in which I am going to bring through your family line, it is too small for just one sliver of land in the Middle East. The scope is all the nations. Psalm chapter 2 finds its fulfillment, which finds its fulfillment in Jesus. God speaks to his anointed one, the king, the Messiah to come, and he says, Ask of me, and I will make, you the, make the nations your heritage 
and the ends of the earth your possession. You see, that's what we hear again and again and again throughout Scripture. If we were to look at other Psalms, if we were to move into the prophets, what we would hear is calls for the nations to praise God, for them to be glad, for all the earth to fear the Lord. Because the scope of God's salvation isn't limited to a single nation or a single place, but the scope of his salvation is, as the Christmas hymns puts it, as far as the curse is found. That wherever the curse is found, that is the scope of God's salvation. And Paul understands this. That's why his preaching of the gospel isn't limited to a single group of people. Right? Look at verse 14. He says, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Then verse 16, the message of salvation was to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So you hear who he's ministering to? Greeks and barbarians, wise and foolish. It's as though Paul is saying, I will take the message to the elite. That's how the Greek people saw themselves. That's how they saw themselves, that they were the elite. They were the educated. They were the, they were the people of the empire. They were the elite in their world. Paul's saying, I will take the message to them. But I also will take it to those who are ignored and passed by. The barbarians. The barbarians were those who were, were from other places, other lands, who didn't speak the language, who didn't understand the customs. The elite might ignore them, but not Paul. He goes on, he takes it to the educated, the wise, to those who aren't, the foolish, to those who grew up hearing the promises of the Old Testament, the Jews, to those who never heard the promises before, the Gentiles. He goes without distinction. He goes to take it to whomever will listen. But think about this, like think about what we know about Paul. Paul was a pretty educated man, right? He was well-versed in the, the law and the cultures of the Jewish people. He grew up in it. He studied under the best teacher of the day, he said, Gamaliel, right? He, he, he had the best education, and he knew all the right things to do as a Jewish man. He was also well-versed in the Greek world, as we've seen from his ministry to the Gentiles as depicted in the book of Acts. He knew their poets and their philosophers, Paul was a well-educated man. And so it would seem very easy, wouldn't it, that Paul would actually feel most comfortable maybe around the other educated, elite people of his day. And yet, it does, he doesn't limit his scope of those he's willing to share the gospel with. Whether they are Jew or Gentile, wise or foolish, elite or ignored. And y'all, this is instructive for us. Because if we are honest with ourselves, we often want to minister to and care for those people we are most comfortable around. And who are we most comfortable around? Well, people who look like us, talk like us, and act like us, and have histories like us. But what about that woman with all the tattoos? Like, not just the one that's hidden on the small of her back, but like everywhere. What about her? Or the man with all the piercings? Or the person dressed in goth? 
What about the highly educated or the high school dropout? What about the single parent family or the conversion van families? What about those who are physically strong and mentally capable and the handicapped? What about those people who have lived in Roanoke all their lives and those who have moved here from another city or region or country? Now listen, I'm not saying that every single one of us is called to every single one of these groups of people. That, that's just, it's just untenable, right? Like, I don't have the capacity for that and neither do you. That's not the point. The point isn't that we would minister to every single kind of person. The point is, is that we would minister to those in our spheres regardless of what kind of person they are. Regardless of appearance or education or political affiliation or economic status or, or where they were born or where they live now. Because the fact of the matter is, is that every single person we engage with, what they are in need of is the gospel. Regardless of how they might be like us or different from us. You see, the scope of salvation is for the Greek and the barbarian, for the wise and the foolish, for the Jew and the Gentile, to any and all that God puts in our lives. To the point that the scope of salvation is the very nations. That's what Paul's telling us. That the scope of salvation is the nations, that the, the source of salvation is Jesus, and then he ends with the power of salvation. Look at those last two verses. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. As one uh, author put it, it is powerful because the gospel does what no other power on earth can do. It can save us and reconcile us to God and guarantee us a place in the kingdom of God forever. You see, friends, the overwhelming message, not just of Romans, but of Scripture itself, is that you cannot save yourself. That, that none of us are strong enough, wise enough, wealthy enough, influential enough, powerful enough to save. None of us. And the reason why none of us are is because in order for us to be saved, what we need is righteousness. And that's something in of ourselves that we do not have. That we are lacking. Later in Romans, in fact, next week's passage, um, it talks all about how unrighteous we are. So you can look forward to that one. Uh, they'll, they'll be really encouraging. Um, but, but, but Paul encapsulates that. He summarizes that fact that we fall short in Romans chapter 3 when he says, No one is righteous, no, not one. All have fallen short of the glory of God, that in of ourselves we are without hope. In of ourselves. But y'all, the good news is that the power of the gospel reveals God's righteousness. A righteousness that doesn't ignore sin and doesn't pass over the punishment that sin deserves, but it takes the Son, and places the punishment that we are deserving and puts it on him, the righteous one, right? We heard this last week when we talked about what the gospel is, 
That it's Jesus who kept the law perfectly without fail. And he takes our sin upon himself. And in doing so, God imparts to us his righteousness. What theologians call an alien righteousness. It's a righteousness that doesn't come from ourselves, but it comes from God. As the Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it, when it asks, what is justification? It answers... It is an act of God's free grace, wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. I mean, it sounds like Westminster is just basically quoting verses 16 and 17, doesn't it? Because, friends, what we have to acknowledge, what we have to see, is that there is no power in us strong enough to save us. What we need is the power of the gospel. We need God's righteousness imputed to us, a righteousness from faith for faith. It's revealed from faith for faith, for all of our life of faith, for the faith when we first believed in the faith in our very last breath. His righteousness. As Paul puts in 2 Corinthians 5, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Friends, that is the power of the gospel. That is the power to save. And y'all, those who know the gospel, those who are trusting in Jesus, we know this, don't we? That there's nothing in us that could save us. I mean, think about your lives before you were a Christian. I know some of your stories. Some of you know mine, right? The, think about the way you were BC, right, before Christ. Like, like, we were the people, if we could go back in time to those days, like, like if we could talk to um, unregenerate Penny and, and say, hey, you know, in, in five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, however many, like, you're going to be a believer in Jesus and worshiping in churches and maybe even pastor. Or you're going to be coming every single week and you're going to be believing the Like if we could go back to that time in history, I don't know about y'all, but I would have been like, man, you are crazy. I must be hallucinating because there is no way that would happen. In fact, that's what someone told me. See, I, I didn't grow up in the church. Many of you know that. I didn't grow up hearing the gospel. I didn't grow up um, learning the things of Jesus. And in my junior year of college, there was this campus minister who would come by my dorm room all the time. And every time he came by, it drove me crazy. He was the last guy I wanted to see because he bothered me. He was annoying to me because I loved my hedonistic life. And I didn't want him to tell me about the gospel, about Jesus, and all these sorts of things. I was happy in my condition. And so I couldn't stand it when he showed up. And then I became a Christian. And I remember talking to him after I became a Christian and thanking him for coming by. And thanking him for coming and, and sharing the gospel. And he goes, he laughed. So we became friends. He was actually in my wedding. He, uh, he says, well, Penny, I have to tell you, I never thought that you would come to faith. I didn't come to your dorm room because I thought that you would be a Christian. I came because I thought your roommates might. As far as I was concerned, there was no hope for you.
And in of myself, there was no hope. And in of yourselves, there is none either. But that's the power of the gospel. To take people who are very far from God and to make us righteous before him. You see, friends, if you're a Christian here this morning, whether you were once extremely wild or extremely moral, whether you were clean-cut or you were crazy, you are only a Christian because of God's power at work. And when we know this, you know what it does to us? It produces thanksgiving. I mean, that's what we see with Paul, right? He doesn't even know this church, and yet he says, I can't stop praying about you. I'm so excited to come see you, right? I've heard about your faith. I love that, by the way. That's a sermon in of itself, right? That what is it that everybody knows about this church? It's their faith. It's not how firm they are. It's not how angry they are. It's their faith in Jesus. That's what's spreading, right? He's thankful for that. He's thankful for them. It produces in us thanksgiving. It also makes us humble. It makes us humble because we know that we did nothing to warrant the salvation that is ours. It makes us compassionate, particularly to those that aren't Christians, that we're engaging with because we know that apart from God's grace, neither would we. And finally, it gives us hope. Hope that no one is too far gone. And so maybe you're sitting here this morning And you're thinking about the people in your life that aren't believers, that aren't Christians, and you want to see them become Christians. You're thinking maybe about those people that that they know, uh, you know that you're good talking to them and having conversations as long as you're talking about like sports or the weather or your neighborhood. But as soon as you start to move the conversation to deeper things, like you can start to feel tension, right? And if you weren't there, they'd be rolling their eyes at you, right? And, and they're kind of wishing that they hadn't shown up at the block party because you, you know, you, you know those, maybe I, I'm the only one who has those people in my life uh, who, who feel that way. No, I, I know I'm not, right? That, that you have those people. And, and it's easy for us to think that, that there is no way. There is no hope. But friends, the gospel, the power of the gospel is that there is hope. We don't presume upon God's promises, but there is hope that the power of the gospel can penetrate the hardest of hearts. Maybe that's what you need to be reminded of this morning. Or maybe what you need to be reminded of this morning, maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. And you're sitting there thinking all the thoughts that you've thought and all the things that you've done and you think there is no way I can be saved. But friend, let me tell you that the message of this passage is that Jesus, the source of our salvation, he can and he has taken the greatest of sinners and by his power saved. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you have not left us to ourselves and you have not left us in our sin, but that you have broken through our hardened hearts and you have shined your gospel of grace upon it. And so I pray that we would live as people who are full of thanksgiving for your salvation, that we would live as people who are humble and compassionate, who are full of hope because of the righteousness that you impart to us. 
Make us this kind of people, Father, so that today and all of our days, we would be part of your gospel going forth, of it being proclaimed to our neighbors and our coworkers, our classmates, and into the very nations, so that the scope of your salvation would reach the ends of the earth. Do this in and through us. For your great name we pray. In Christ's name, amen.